1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, coming to you from Sundance, Utah. In California, we have Corey Shockey. In uh, an undisclosed location near Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks, and in our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we are fortunate to have with us Christine Warmuth, who directs the Adrian Arsht Center on Resilience at the Atlantic Council. And, Christine, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Um, and uh, I apologize for the fact that there is no deep state mug in front of you, but we will get you one shortly. Um uh question this past week we saw something that was interesting on many levels to deep state nerds like our listeners um, who are you know fo- who follow foreign policy in a different way from the way most people do and that is that we had a national defense strategy released um, uh, and that hasn't happened I don't think in 10 years but but in addition to that, it sort of sets up this kind of strange, you know, contest, because we had a national security strategy, which was prepared by H.R. McMaster and his folks, uh, and it had some different themes from the ones that uh, Secretary Mattis and his team put together in their national defense strategy. Um, and so we have this idea of sort of dueling strategies, which I think tells us something about how this government works. And then the third thing about it that was uh, interesting was that it it seemed to, for the first time, I think, in 17 years, suggest that maybe terrorism wasn't the number one thing. It, w- it wasn't even that equivocal. It said it's not. And that we have to return our attention to the rise of great powers, which seemed welcome to me uh, and quite thoughtful and strategic, uh, but is very different. And I was just wondering, since you were under secretary of defense and you have been closely involved in these issues throughout your career, what your take on this moment, this competition and these conclusions were.
0: <clears> yeah. Well first I will say I have to push back on the this is the first defense strategy in 10 years. And this is, I think, sort of a, a popular misconception amongst only, you know, deep state radio nerds, because real real <laughs> people don't have a popular or unpopular misconception real about didn't defense strategy. <laughs> exactly. Right. But but actually um, Each quadrennial defense review, you know, which basically every administration puts out every four years, starts with a defense strategy. So it's not a standalone document, but we had a defense strategy in 2010. We had a defense strategy in 2014. And we even had the defense strategic guidance statement in 2012, which was sort of the document where President Obama famously made clear that we were definitely doing the rebalance to Asia So it's not really the case, although um, certainly the Trump administration is saying that this is the first defense strategy in the last 10 years. And I think that's part of their narrative that, you know, the previous administration led us to a point of strategic atrophy. So I would just want to correct the record on that. I definitely think there is a tonal – difference between the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. I mean, you see a lot less in the national defense strategy, which Secretary Mattis personally rolled out on Friday in his speech, which I think is a good thing. It's a lot more about alliances and partners than it is about America first. And I was certainly struck by that. Uh, And I think that that's a good thing. And I think it's reflective, frankly, of kind of the whole way that Secretary Mattis kind of has been running the Defense Department since he became secretary, um, I—it's definitely the case that the NDS and the National Security Strategy both put Russia and China front and center as strategic competitors and place that over and above terrorism. <clears throat> Again, I would say um, a lot of what I saw in the National Defense Strategy is consistent with what was happening in DOD for the last few years. There, there was already a shift, particularly under Bob Work, when he became De- Deputy Secretary of Defense, to really focus on Russia, to really focus on China, to really start pushing the department to invest in the kinds of capabilities we would need if, heaven forbid, we were ever in a competition—you know—a hot war with either one of those countries. Um, but, but it is, I think, notable that that they are clearly and publicly saying terrorism is, you know, not going to be. Front and center, uh, and you know, I I just hope that the, the world and the enemy will go along with that.
1: Yeah, well, don't we don't don't, don't we all? Um, but but Corey, it seems like you know, within this national defense strategy, there was a a, a a view that seemed to have more historical context that seemed more like a strategy that seemed less like a political speech uh that seemed less tinged by the politics of 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 the president um than the national security strategy did and when that came out there was a lot of discussion that it was you know a bit of a break from the president and seemed a little bit more rational than he did. Um and I'm just wondering what you, what what your take on this is is the Republic of Mattis the place we want to all go live? you know, where, where there's a, a little bit more enlightened leadership um, and they, <laughs> they seem to get it better?
2: It is certainly true that the Secretary of Defense has different government. views on government. important stuff than the President of the United States does. And as Christine said, that's very much uh, to the benefit of the National Defense Strategy, right? It's um, the Secretary of Defense has a rich appreciation for the fact that countries that have allies uh, have a better opportunity, right? They more likely win than lose their wars. They have It is cheaper and easier to do it with allies than to do it yourself. I like a lot of the stuff that's in the national defense strategy. And in fact, it, it sounds a lot like a chapter that Jim Ellis and Jim Mattis and I wrote for a book George Schultz was doing uh, called The Blueprint for America. That, you know, he brought, he brought a different set of views into the challenge than the president brings into the challenge, and it's very much to the good. But as you rightly suggest, David, there is no substitute for the president believing these things. And the challenge with both the national Uh, security strategy and the national defense strategy is whether the president of the United States will honor them. It looked like on the Syria policy that Secretary Tillerson rolled out last week that the president is either so enervated by doing his job or so bored by doing it that he just let the let the sensible wing of the administration make policy, but it's not at all clear that the president of the United States will provide the resources to carry out this policy or to carry out this national defense strategy.
1: Well, this, you know, brings me to another question here, Rosa, as we think about this thing, which is, you know, the more you look at this administration, the less it looks like an administration and the more it looks like you know, sort of a bacteria colony, you know, sort of little separate entities.
3: Like a group um, of E. coli. Yeah, something,
1: something like that, but it's like I did little not separate entities. Visual. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we'll stop with that visual for a second. But that live, you know, sort of on their own and separate from each other. And, you know, once upon a time when we were trying to find something to cling to here, we thought of uh, the axis of adults as people who are going to sort of, you know, be more reasonable. Uh, And of course, we've learned since that almost everybody and and many inanimate objects are actually more reasonable than the president. Um, But that Mattis and Tillerson, they're not exactly in the same place, or Tillerson and McMaster are not exactly in the same place, and Mattis and McMaster are not in the same place, and Pompeo, who might have been an adult, is not an adult, uh, and Jim Kelly, who, who might have been an adult, is actually part of the problem. Um, that this 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 uh, I think idea of access of adults as something coherent has been exploded. Is that your view, too?
3: Yes, but th- that in itself wouldn't necessarily matter if it weren't for the the central incoherence, which is Donald Trump. Uh, you know, remember when Obama came in in two thousand and eight, everyone was was fussing over how wonderful it was that he was reading Team of Rivals and uh, he made Hillary Clinton his Secretary of State and so on and so he kept Robert Gates on as Secretary of Defense. And it's not always a bad thing to have cabinet level officials who who disagree with each other. In fact, it can be a good thing. You know, It can be a source of sort of fertile arguments and, and you get lots of different perspectives and it makes it tougher for everybody to just end up being in a little bubble. Uh, the 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 missing piece now, of course, is a decider, a an intelligent, thoughtful listener in the White House who will be informed in a positive way by going, huh, you know, gee, it looks like Mattis's perspective is really different from Kelly's. It looks like Tillerson's perspective is really different from McMaster's. You know, let me think hard about that and let me invite in other people with even more perspectives. Uh, and then I will make a decision that will be a better decision because I consider all these varying perspectives. Instead, we have kind of a free-for-all. And and I've said before uh, uh, in our previous podcasts, I, I, I think of us as having multiple different foreign policies uh, in different parts of our government. Um, If we go back to our bacterial culture metaphor, you know, the the biggest bacterial culture remains the Defense Department, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, the way you you culture bacteria is you give them sugar and you sort of see what happens. And and DOD's got more sugar. It continues to have more sugar. Um, It will continue to have more sugar. I think government shutdown notwithstanding... Uh, I think that the longer-term prospects for DoD continuing to have, you know, a the lion's share of the uh, uh, resources and authorities is, is it, it it's looking good for DoD. Uh, it's not looking so good for the rest of the
1: U.S. government. Christine, you expected this was going to be a discussion in microbiology, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, my dad was an oceanographer, so I'm completely comfortable with bacteria.
1: Well, yeah, in Washington, we all have to get comfortable with bacteria pretty quickly. Um, But there is a question here, and I pose it to you from your perspective, um, uh, having served uh, in a senior position in the the DOD, uh, which, by the way, also Rosa and and Corey have done. But is this a – does this make strategies like this kind of uh, empty? And academic, because there isn't coherence, that not at the center, the, the you know the the not between the departments, not between the executive and the legislative branch of the government. are we just sort of writing papers so that we can say, you know we might go there someday or I'm not sort of in league with these other extremists. Well you know it, or is there a practical consequence? Is there something that will come out of something like this NDS? That will actually have material meaning.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a whole group of people who I think for a long time have said that these kind of strategic documents are meaningless academic, uh, you know, exercises and are just kind of making glossy documents that are coffee table books for I guess kind of pretty cheap coffee tables. Uh, I, I never really bought into that. I think I think there are three things ideally that these kinds of documents can do. Um, whether it's national security strategy or national defense strategy. The first one is, you know, in an ideal state. It's 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 an expression of the president's vision. They can uh, build the team. They can basically sort of, you know, get all of the senior leaders of an administration's foreign policy team on the same page, and then they can drive budgets. And I think, you know, when you look at – if you look at those three things here, it, it seems pretty clear to me that – President Trump's connection to these documents <clears throat> might be pretty um, loose. You know, it's not clear to me. I, and I think if you're a if you're a foreign government, whether you're a friend or an enemy, you look at these documents and you really ask yourself, you know, is anything in here, you know, really representative of what President Trump says since, you know, the fact that both of the documents are very, very critical and tough on Russia, whereas President Trump himself, you know, really doesn't seem to be. So I think in the, in terms of being an expression of the president's vision, it's fair that this is going to, you know, raise a lot of questions, I think, in capitals around the world. Um, not clear for the same reason that it's necessarily done a whole lot to bring all of the foreign policy team senior people onto the same page. I mean as you said, David, there's the varying kind of and changing constellations of alliances. Tillerson and Mattis are clearly very well aligned. But on the others, you know, it may change from week to week. I do think that the national defense strategy, which I do believe Secretary Mattis was personally quite involved in, can be useful in terms of driving the investments in the Department of Defense and getting his own leadership team on board um, for the next five years of the defense budgets. But that's assuming that the broader administration can come up with a plan to get resources to the Department of Defense that are, you know, above the Budget Control Act, and that's a whole other issue. But I do think there's still a big prospect to drive key investments.
2: Can I leap on that? Because it's leap leap on it but be careful <laughs> most
1: accidents occur within the home you know
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you david um so it seems to me <clears throat> that the national defense strategy it's terrific at setting priorities right that that a uh, great power competition is what we need to focus on now a diminution of uh of terrorism as a national security priority, a focus on first China, then Russia, then North Korea, then Iran, and outlining uh, things the department could do better in its business practices. But what it does not do is build a strategy consistent with the likely resource portfolio. And that's the major failing of this. So back in the Obama administration, when Marty Dempsey was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he infamously said if congress cuts even one dollar from the defense budget we won't be able to execute this strategy and then congress cut 80 billion dollars from the defense budget and we made no changes to the strategy which tells you that it's not a real strategy and i actually think the 2018 national defense strategy is on the exact same thin ice which is the secretary of defense complained that for the nine of the last 10 years, DOD has been operating under a continuing resolution and the budget caps are the apocalypse and we're losing our edge in every major domain of warfare. And yet he built a strategy consistent on predictable and higher levels of resources. And that's actually a huge failing. He ought at a minimum to have done an excursion from the strategy that explained to everyone what the best that can be done if Congress doesn't magically uh, begin to uh, return to regular budgeting business and the president doesn't magically prove himself able able of marshaling a majority for higher defense spending.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about one of those resource issues. There's actually a <clears throat> a troika of big strategic documents floating around in the nerd um, But you know, the national security strategy. <laughs> I love that phrase, David. Yeah, the, 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 the national defense strategy, and also the nuclear posture review. And the nuclear posture review, um, again, has these kind of echoes of Trump in it, and let's invest and let's, you know, you know, spend a lot more money on a lot more new nukes. But one of the terms that sort of lurks within it, Rosa, is this idea of having more usable nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. Um, yeah. and, and and that seems like a kind of disturbing concept to me, but you work <laughs> well, in the Department of Defense and I didn't. So tell me, <laughs> should I be, should I be disturbed?
3: No, of course not, David. As, as the the Holy Grail of of missileers, the <laughs> Holy Grail of of those who like nukes is, is these, uh, you know, little teensy weensy, very tailored, nuclear weapons that we can actually use because they really won't be any worse than conventional weapons, except they'll sort of be better, right? You know that that's the fantasy that we're we're going to be able to develop nuclear weapons that. Will be able to penetrate to deeper levels, but will not have the kind of catastrophic fallout that people think of when they think of 1980s movies like The Day After. So we'll, you know, because because this is the paradox of nuclear weapons uh, at the moment. You know, the paradox of nuclear weapons is 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 that you've got these nuclear weapons, but you sort of can't use them because they're they're so big, they're so scary, they're so awful that to use them invites uh, global catastrophe which makes them of questionable value. Um so, you know, it's it's the remember, remember Madeleine Albright's famous uh, fight with Colin Powell when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, during the Balkan Wars, where she said, what's the point of having this whole big military if we if we're not allowed to ever use it? Um, um so we have this enormous nuclear arsenal, which president after president has basically felt like we can't use. Um, and so the 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 question has always been, is there a is there a way that is not terribly terribly dangerous to to create weapons uh, that are small enough and tailored enough that they're actually usable? and the the argument for that is, um, let's not let's not there's nothing mystical about nuclear weapons that it's not like, you know, Lord Voldemort and the dark arts and so forth. Um, That we should evaluate them like we evaluate any other kind of weapon based on the actual damage that they can inflict and their actual value. Uh, And that if we are rational about this and don't just get all hysterical at the word nuclear, uh, that there is no reason that we should not be trying to develop this technology. Uh, And the technology is certainly more advanced than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or or obviously 40 or 50 years ago. The, the counterargument to that, and the reason that probably you should still be pretty scared, um, uh, is that the, you know, perceptions matter, and if the rest of the world thinks of Lord Voldemort and the dark arts, that it's probably not good enough for the U.S. to say, oh, don't worry, guys, these are just tiny little harmless nuclear weapons that only kill bad guys. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that the risks of escalation uh, and just breaking that taboo in a way that could lead other countries to use their not so teensy weensy tailored nuclear weapons remain astronomical. so so, so, you know, the other view is just don't mess around with this stuff, and well, I would just Christ-
0: jump in. The other thing that's kind of driving it links back to the to the. Russia thing, which is that, you know, Russia for a few years now has had a doctrine that says escalate to deescalate. And they have they have signaled in a variety of ways that they might be more willing to use a nuclear weapon in a regional conflict in a tactical sense. And so if you're part of this nuclear priesthood, as I like to call them, you want these new, smaller, you know, very trustworthy nuclear weapons to be able to deal with that situation.
1: Okay, well, so you know, we have sort of two images. We have Lord Voldemort and the Dark Arts, and then we have this uh, fantasy of the nuclear priesthood. That's a little bit like kind of cholesterol and calorie-free bacon, you know. That you know, there's these little wait
3: a minute, it's not cholesterol and
1: calorie-free. <laughs> no, it's like the fat-free Sorry.
0: yogurt in Seinfeld, Corey.
1: Exactly. It's all it's all like the fat-free yogurt in Seinfeld. <laughs> but but, that, but that's you know one of the, the X factors in all of this is that while Rosa cites Madeleine Albright, during the campaign, apparently talking to some would-be advisors, um, candidate Trump said, "Well, what's the point of having all these nuclear weapons if we can't use them?" This was immediately leaked uh, in a way that, by the way, was kind of dubious to me and made it seem pretty clear to me that the person, who Trump was speaking to at the time was Richard Haass of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, but in was um, <laughs> curiously leaked to Joe Scarborough. You know, it was like, oh, I wonder where that came from. But, um, <laughs> but in any event, you know, it does seem like Trump is an advocate um, of this kind of uh, uh, nukes-we-can-use attitude. Uh, and, of course... He's very well schooled in this cuz he had an uncle who taught at MIT uh, as he tells us on a regular basis. <laughs> um, isn't that more dangerous? Christine, and then I'm going to go to Corey.
0: Well, I'm certainly not very comfortable with a president who who, you know, wants to be able to use nuclear weapons. I'm I think we need to have a nuclear arsenal and we need to have um, a robust nuclear arsenal, but we need it for deterrence, and I personally you know, don't want us ever to cross that threshold, and I think that it's uh, dangerous to start going down this road of smaller, lower-yield nuclear weapons uh, precisely because if we, if we break through that taboo, if we, you know, which, which has only been broken twice when we drop the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, who knows what will happen? Uh, I, I don't want to find out.
1: But, you know, I th- one of the things that I find most troubling is that there are some members of this nuclear priesthood and some who have been close to it who are as worried about all this um, uh, as as I am and as some of you s- appear to be. Uh, and I remember when, when I was doing my b- book, National Insecurity, and I was talking to a bunch of people uh, from the Bush administration and from the Obama administration. Um, uh, one of them, a former... Cabinet official said to me that you know if we really did a deep dive into the state of the nuclear arsenal, it would be the most terrifying thing that we could do. Um, that it was it was in really really bad shape, um, and uh, you know I, I that that also is 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 worrisome. Um, and Corey, I'm just wondering, you know, as as you see us at this moment. Is the big answer invest more in new nukes? Uh, is is that the right way to go, or you know, is it, you know, let's you know go back to where Obama was, you know, early on, and and let's find a way to zero out and move towards different technologies altogether?
2: I do think it merits investing more in the nuclear weapons enterprise now. For a few reasons. Uh, The first is that uh, arms control is an extraordinarily valuable American national security tool, and I'm very much in favor of it. But it requires certain conditions like Uh confidence that the Russians will honor agreements that they make like confidence that as low as we take our arsenal we don't leave ourselves in the position where not just you know the russians but a potential combination of allies put the pakistanis in the mix put uh, if turkey goes nuclear Uh, maybe they would be cooperating with others. So so we tend to think in bilateral U.S.-Russian terms about arms control, because that's mostly the way nuclear arms control has occurred for the United States. But there are two problems with that first it's not at all clear that the Russians either want new agreements. I would love to see an arms control agreement limiting sub-strategic nuclear forces, Mm -hmm. what used to be called tactical nuclear weapons. I would love to be able to get control and reduce numbers on both sides in that equation, but I, but the Russians are clearly not willing to do that. And they're cheating on the INF agreement. And so we need to be extremely cautious in a bilateral U S Russian sense, but multilaterally, we are we are our arsenal is now low enough in strategic nuclear weapons that i'm a little bit nervous about for example the way the north koreans talk about reaching nuclear parity with the united states and then forcing us to comply with their terms so so i am less positive about arms control as a near term useful tool in our national security arsenal. The second thing is that, that it is true that we need to rebuild some of our nuclear forces um, and that we ought to be more concerned about reliability issues and about management of the existing limited force. On the question of, uh, of nuclear use, I agree with Christine that the main beneficiaries of the nuclear taboo have actually been the United States, right? Because we're conventionally strong enough, we can win our wars by conventional means and preserving the nuclear threshold as uncrossable, therefore benefits us disproportionately. Um, But it's not at all clear to me that, that other countries view it in the same way. I I do not believe, as President Obama and many senior figures in the Obama administration suggested, that our behavior in nuclear reductions affects, diminishes the willingness, the desire on the part of others to have them. I, I don't think that's been proven out, whereas what has been proven out is that countries that might cross the nuclear threshold, have been persuaded not to because they are confident in American security guarantees, which goes back to the strength of our own conventional and nuclear forces.
1: So what I think I just heard there was Corey saying that, you know, former Obama defense officials were soft-headed optimists. Um, any former Obama officials want to respond to that?
0: <laughs> you're a bad person,
1: David.
0: <laughs> I think I am mean, Corey is always so nice when she, she she doesn't sort of come out and say you're a soft-headed uh, thinker. But what I what I heard is basically I agree with Corey. Nations seek nuclear weapons for their so own there, David. national security reasons. Um, You know, I I think it would be very desirable to, you know, get to a world that is free of nuclear weapons. But I think, you know, President Obama was pretty, pretty blunt about saying he didn't think that would necessarily happen in his lifetime. And, you know, while he was pursuing arms control reductions where they were possible, you know, he he definitely didn't uh, pursue unilateral reductions. He didn't, um, you know, say we were going to go down to zero. And as a matter of fact, he put millions of, well billions of dollars into his budget requests for modernization of the nuclear triad. And I think in the for the most part it'll be interesting to see when the when the new Trump budget comes out next month, perhaps, to see, you know, whether they put even more money towards nuclear modernization. But the Obama administration put a ton of money towards that all on its own, in part, frankly, as you know, relate in, to, to get the the deal for the new START arms control agreement. But I agree with Corey that states, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Iran, generally seek nuclear weapons for their own national security interests, m- much more than they are shaped by the positive behavior of the United States.
1: Well, Rosa, it, it, that, that didn't sound dangerously soft-headed to me, so that could only leave you. <laughs>
3: No, I was just going to make a slightly different and smaller point, um, which one of the the emphases in the national defense strategy is on modernizing the nuclear force. And that obviously was something that that the Obama uh, administration also was interested in doing. We have a nuclear force that consists in part of weapons and weapons systems that have been basically sitting around for decades. Um, and the, if if you ever want to really get frightened, um, read up on the number of false alarms Mm -hmm. and near misses and screw ups that relate to our nuclear arsenal. The number of times that, uh, just because of computer glitches or human error, we almost got into a nuclear war, uh, and obviously this was averted each time, but when you, you know, if you're if you're into statistics, if you take the number of times we came unbelievably close, uh, and you multiply that out over time, it looks pretty likely that just due to sheer accident, uh, that we could end up in some kind of a nuclear conflict. Um, and and you know the the kinds of near misses we've had in the past, you know, range range from training tapes being inadvertently a couple decades back being inadvertently left in the system. Uh, training tapes for a, a simulation involving a an adversary launch of nuclear weapons that were briefly thought to mean a real launch. Um, to uh, we had we had a scandal a few years back where a I think it was about a, almost a hundred uh, Air Force personnel um, uh, it, at Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana were. Uh, well, no, sorry, that was that was that. Well, that was that was a couple years. That was more recently dismissed for using illegal drugs. Uh, there was a nuclear launch officer in North Dakota who was sentenced to a couple decades in prison for heading a violent street gang. Um, there were uh, almost a hundred uh, uh, launch officers who were disciplined for cheating um, um, <laughs> on a you know a test a few years back. Um, if you're going to have weapons that can trigger a conflict that potentially destroys the world, the least you can do is make sure that they are physically in good shape, that they are not rusty, that they do not have mice eating into them, uh, and that they are, uh, they are monitored, guarded, et cetera, by people who are extremely well-trained, have high morale, know what they're doing and have really, really tight procedures. And at the moment, despite some improvements made in the wake of some of these scandals, I don't think anyone can say that with confidence. So we're sort of in the worst of all possible worlds. We're not even close to zero, uh, but we can't even feel completely confident that that all of our nuclear arsenal is functional in the event that we did want to use it, which hopefully we never, we never will, nor can we guarantee uh, with anything close to complete confidence, uh, that we wouldn't end up uh, sparking off a nuclear conflict completely by accident?
1: Well, I, na- naturally, first of all, that was classic Rosa. <laughs>
3: right. I was going to say, I no cheer of optimism, optimism there. there a good cheer. <laughs> <tear. laughs> we hadn't talked enough about the apocalypse on this podcast, <laughs> and I think it's really time to bring that back.
1: No, I think this you know, this needs to be set in amber, put in a time capsule or something, because that was perfect. But it, it really... It really sort of requires me to go back to, and I'll go back to Corey, and then we'll end with Christine again. But, 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 I it requires me just sort of go back to to Corey and say, well, you know, that's pretty compelling. And actually, it sounds actually, <laughs> believe it or not, to me more dangerous than that, um, because there isn't just one kind of adversary out there. There are a couple kinds of adversaries. There's some that are more advanced, perhaps like the Russians and the Chinese. But there is the possibility uh, and the reality of proliferation of nuclear weapons to states like North Korea or Pakistan that can be kind of sieves, and you can end up with nuclear um, uh, uh, use uh, coming from actors who who really aren't adherents to theories like mutual assured destruction or any of that. And then compounding that, you know, it's 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 not just the people who are handling the nukes; it's the people. Who have to give the orders, and and right now we have at least a couple of people who are in the position of giving orders regarding nuclear weapons, who are kind of unhinged and and certainly erratic, ranging from uh, Kim Jong Un to our own president. So you know, if you take what Rosa said and you sort of wrap it in what I said, Corey, how do you how do you retain your tiara of optimism and look at all of
2: that? <laughs> so uh, I. I agree with Rosa's very dour, depressing, scary description. As I was listening to her talk, I um, I heard a performance of Leonard Bernstein's Candide yesterday, right? With its Panglossian best of all possible worlds, um, being proven repeatedly, consistently inaccurate. And I could just see Rosa egging Voltaire <laughs> on to show how ridiculous optimism actually is. But, 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 just as Voltaire's conclusion was that the the proper antidote to ridiculous optimism is rigorous, enlightened
3: intellectualism. We're supposed to be cultivating our own garden.
2: right? Exactly. Um, That pessimism isn't the solution, that rigorous, enlightened intellectualism is the solution. And the question to ask about the scariness of proliferation is whether it would occur irrespective of the American nuclear arsenal. And I think the answer to that is yes. Yes. Pakistan would still want nuclear weapons. They may still proliferate them, irrespective of whether we have them or not. What us having them does is caution any potential adversary that doing harm to us could incur unimaginable harm in retaliation. And that's the central paradox of the nuclear age, which is the outsized threats of nuclear war in fact, proved to be stabilizing between the strongest countries in the international order so far. That does not protect us against the very reasonable objection you and Rosa raised, which is, oh my God, idiots have their fingers on the trigger. And that's absolutely true. But the solution to that is don't elect idiots. Um, and when you are dealing with foreign idiots like Kim Jong-un, be clear be simple, don't be provocative, right? Make yourself easy to be understood. Um, and that's why President Trump is such a danger in these circumstances.
1: But, but First of all, thank you for the reference to Leonard Bernstein and the 100th anniversary of his birth. It was very <laughs> thoughtful, and 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 as oh, your. Oh, plan- David! I so love that you are
2: nerdy enough to know that it's the hundredth anniversary of Leonard Bernstein's birth.
1: Well, I'll see you that, and I'll raise you by saying that the song from Candide that you need to think about as you prepare for your move is "I'm Easily Assimilated." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Deep state
2: nerds. David Rothkopf is our fearless
1: leader. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you. Um, that's because I'm the only person in the foreign policy community who started the first 10 years of his career as a theater director. But
2: <laughs> Christine, <laughs> I did not know that.
1: That's true. It's that's that was the first 10 years of my my working life. Um, but Christine, to wrap this up, as we look at this, the picture is pretty bleak. And of these three strategies, the one that seems um, to be the most potentially worrisome is this nuclear posture review. Can you end us with any particularly kind of upbeat note to go along with, Corey's? Uh,
0: <clears throat> well, I or, guess so. or
1: would you like to turn to Rosa and get her help buying one of the silos that she seems to be renting out to people? Uh, as a you, can, you can come visit
3: yeah, I, silo anytime, I, Christine. I
0: have to say, it does feel like a good time to be buying a silo between everything that's having right. uh, happening on the Korean Peninsula. I, I, I find myself eyeing a silo more and more, unfortunately. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's partly because I feel like there's a, a nexus between the, the very – depressing picture that Rosa painted of the brittleness in some ways and fragility of our whole nuclear enterprise. And that is something that DOD has been trying to fix, but it's a long and expensive prospect. And frankly, the concerns that so many people have and um, with President Trump's decision-making and consistency and sort of ability to take all this seriousness seriously. And I, I was struck, frankly, by the fact that Bob Corker up on the uh, the Hill, you know, who's chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, had a whole hearing basically going into, you know, sort of how does the nuclear system work and what is the process for a president to make a decision to use nuclear weapons. And he had a former head of strategic command to kind of walk him through it. And when you put together President Trump and his impulsiveness and the brittleness of our system and the— the Frankly, the challenges that the nuclear command and control system has in a lot of ways whew, makes me want to buy that silo.
1: Well, <laughs> another upbeat episode of Deep State Radio <laughs> comes to a conclusion. People, direct your queries to Rosa for where the best silos can be found. Um, she handles the Deep State real estate division, <laughs> um, and it seems to me like she'll be doing just fine. Uh, Thank you very, very much uh, for joining us, Christine, and we hope you will come back again soon. Uh, Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Deep State Radio this week. And please join us again next week when there will be more uh, mayhem and depression for all of you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network